I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder and Sure. We know that life can be challenging, even filled with disappointment and frustration, and worse than that, tragedy and heartbreak. But why choose to focus on that to let your life be defined by that when it's also filled with excitement and opportunity and possibility. And folks, it's a cliche, but it's true. It's all about looking at the glass as being half full instead of half empty, of deciding to stop just growing older and to start growing bolder because it is worth it. We learn that every week, and we will teach it again today. Yeah, we've got a guy whose passion is leading people with disabilities on amazing adventures and a woman who reinvented her life in retirement to become a renowned action sports photographer. Cool stuff, Mark. How about a woman who retired at 70 to write full-time? Now she's got two published books and a slew of writing awards and a man who overcame drug and alcohol addiction and obesity to become a professional athlete. We've got them all today on Growing Boulder. He's a world-class skier, climber, and mountaineer who is in the history books for leading the first-ever blind man to the summit of Mount Everest, the world's highest mountain. He wrote a book about that remarkable achievement, but that's only the beginning of the story. Yeah, this is a very interesting fellow. He has a passion for leading people with disabilities up some of the world's highest mountains. He also teaches disabled skiers in Vail, and he directs Adventures Beyond Limits, which is an organization that educates and encourages youth with disabilities in the outdoors. And given all of that, you won't be surprised to learn that he's also become one of the world's most in-demand motivational speaker. So, Bill, what do you say? Let's get motivated. Let's do it as we welcome Eric Alexander. Hey, Eric, how are you? Hey, good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bill. I'm doing great. How are you guys? Uh, are you on a satellite phone at the summit of Denali or something <laughs> like that, or what? I wish I was. I'm actually on my way to uh, DIA. I'm flying to Fort Wayne, Indiana, a little flatter than most places I <laughs> frequent. Yeah, you're going to summit Fort Wayne today. Good, <laughs> good, good luck with that. Hey, hey, listen, climbing Mount Everest is tough and dangerous enough. Leading a group to the summit even tougher. Leading the first ever blind person to the summit, almost unimaginable for us. And yet that's exactly what you did with your friend Eric uh, Weinenmayer. How did all of that come about? Yeah, it was a terrific experience that's still having an impact on my life years later. You know, he's a great guy, a talented athlete, and he'd been climbing for years. So it wasn't just something he came up with overnight and said, hey, I'm going to go do this. It was years in the making, training, planning. And he got together with a guy named Pasquale, who lives here in Colorado also. And Pasquale kind of threw it out there to him, knowing he was a climber, and said, hey, dude, you ever wanted to climb Mount Everest? And he said, yeah. I think his wife slapped him on the back of the head at that same exact moment. But uh, that's kind of where it started. When those two met, they hatched this idea. Eric, we'd been friends for a few years, so he invited me to be a part of this trip, this team. And then Pasquale put a few guys that he had also climbed with in the Himalayas previously to make this team. When word got out about it, you know, people said, you're going to fail, you're going to die. And uh, that's exactly the kind of uh, criticism that we faced. And these were from elite veterans. However, we knew that Eric had what it takes and that we were experts on this and not just making our decision or a judgment based on a perception of what blindness was. Did you, did you struggle a little bit with the fact that, sure, he may that may be his goal, but you're the facilitator. Ultimately, it's your fault if something happens. Yeah, I knew that we would be linked together very closely like that, you know, and I think ultimately that's what made us so successful is because he had an incredible amount of trust in me and in this team around him. And so he knew that I'd be committed to him no matter what, going up through the ice fall, you know, if the weather should move in and a terrible storm, I could get down faster without him indeed, but he knew that I wouldn't, that I'd stay by his side, lose my fingers if I had to. But ultimately, I also knew he'd put everything he had, he he could, into this climb. And so I think it was just that really deep trust that uh, made this climb special and kind of separated us from others. You know, one of the things, Eric, that seems special about you, and, uh, you know, I'm just making this up as I go along, so correct me if I'm wrong, but most so-called adventurers seem to be in it for themselves, for the challenge, for the thrill, 
uh, maybe for the notoriety. You seem to be in it for others uh, as much as anything. Is, is that what turns you on? Is that where you get your thrill, assisting others, facilitating others, as Bill mentioned? I don't know about a, a thrill, but I think I, I find just a deeper, longer-lasting impact from it, that it goes beyond me. And I think so many things in our lives we find empty when we just pursue them for what they are, you know, whether that be career or, you know, the, the trappings of success, you could call it. But I find when I invest in somebody else and helping them pursue their dream, it makes mine a little richer. And so, yeah, I, I get a lot more out of it. It's as Lightning McQueen says, you know, it's just an empty cup when you reach the finish line. And there's a little more joy in the journey when you're there with somebody else and uh, pursuing your dreams and goals with them. You know, Mark mentioned that the incredible work that you do with Adventures Beyond Limits, and among many other things, you lead a 30-mile trek through the Andes of Peru with nine blind students that ends at Machu Picchu. You've also climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa with the same group. And before we talk more about what you get out of those trips, what do those with the disabilities get out of them? Yeah, it's interesting. One of the questions I get asked most frequently is, well, they obviously aren't doing it for the view. And (laughs) you go to these beautiful, extraordinary places, and that's indeed true. But when when I break it down for myself, too, I'm not really doing it just for the view. It's kind of that same thing. It's that camaraderie, that trust, that friendship that you develop along the way. So for these blind students, just like any, anybody else, it's the chance to pursue a goal, a dream, an objective, overcome obstacles. It's a difficult journey, but when you get to the end, you're much, much better off for it. You're, you're stronger. Your friendships are deeper. You've learned to trust and to step out, and you have learned about faith and, and so many things. And when we arrived at Machu Picchu, these blind students were given special permission to touch the stones, duck the ropes, you know, and uh, investigate things that were off limits to most tourists. But it really only lasted 20 minutes because pretty soon one rock started to feel just like another. And we realized at that point that the journey was over the moment we arrived. It wasn't about this destination. It was about the, the journey and the friendships. And uh, that, that's what uh, they got from it. That was their summit. Folks, we're talking with uh, Eric Alexander, a renowned high-altitude mountaineer and adventurer who has really done some amazing things and uh, and led, among other things, the first-ever uh, blind man to, to the summit of Mount Everest. Uh, Eric, we've had a few high-altitude mountaineers on this show, and it seems like the lessons learned, as you've just said, on the climb actually transcend the climb itself. William Blake said, "'Great things are done when men and mountains meet.'" Uh, you're a man of faith. Uh, wh- what are the great things that have happened to you on on the side of a mountain? This might seem cliche because going to altitude, you can say, well, I'm closer to God. I'm, I'm higher up. But in, in all honesty, I've never felt such a closeness to God as I did on Mount Everest. And I think it's because it demanded so much more of me and there was such risk and such great hazards. And then to be in this unique situation with my friend, Eric, I I just knew it was beyond me and my own strength. And that's a really neat place to be when you have to depend on the Lord. And it also brought me to a great place of prayer where every day I'd be on my knees and praying and listening to praise music. And perhaps the, the best thing about it is that you're just free from all distraction. There's, and comforts too. And so you're out there in this place and electronics are hard to charge and keep with you and keep going. And so it's just a very quiet and peaceful place. But at the same time, you're facing great danger. And so you have to put it out there and know that it's beyond yourself. And so it really uh, challenged me in my faith and to depend on him. And it enriched my prayer life. And I just felt this incredible closeness. And also, I I knew that at that point, death was not the worst thing that could happen to me, because as it says in Romans 8, 28, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So not even going to the top of the world can separate me me from his love. You you know, Eric, so so few of us percentage-wise will ever have the experience of climbing to the top of the mountain or overcoming some gigantic obstacle. So what would you say is the moral of your story, the Eric Alexander story? What have your adventures and your, your willingness to, to take these risks, what, what has it taught you about life that, that you can share with the rest of us? 
I would say you don't have to go to the ends of the earth, that every day is a great journey and you have to find joy in the journey of every day because the summits only last for moments, but we're down in the valleys and in the trenches working hard most of the days and they're inhospitable too. You stand on that summit and it's glorious, it's beautiful, sure, but um, it's a dangerous and inhospitable place. Whereas the valleys are where things grow. It's rich. The soil is, is dark and, you know, uh, things grow and it's where we grow as well. So we have to find joy in the everyday journey and every once in a while challenge ourselves to step out of what's comfortable and into the unknown. Uh, Eric, in the final 45 seconds, from, from the profound and the spiritual to the human and the mundane, uh, Mountaineering seems to bring out the worst in some people. When the summit of Everest is involved, climbers literally step over the bodies of dying climbers in order to reach the summit. Are there too many people who don't belong on Everest now? Are you bothered by the summit at all cost mentality that so many seem to have? Boy, we could talk for hours on this one for <laughs> 45 seconds. Um, yeah, I'm bothered by the you know summit or plummet kind of mentality that so many people have you see the best and the worst in people and it, it's only uh more pronounced the higher you get i was proud of my team because my team was always willing to step out not just to help eric who's blind but to help other teams when things were going wrong and so they looked at us like we would be the the weak link the one to avoid on the mountain when actually we became the strongest team we were eventually called the strongest team to climb in everest history and i think it's because we didn't only just look out for ourselves. We looked out for other teams on the mountain. And I think uh, I want the mountains to remain open and free because that's what mountains are. They represent that. But yeah, people get in, they get into such trouble because they, they don't really belong. They don't have the experience or the proper heart and mentality to, to look after others. So, uh, I don't know. You did <laughs> I don't a, know what the future will hold. You did a great job. Next time we'll ask that question first, and you can answer it as you want. Uh, uh, really appreciate your time, folks. He is Eric Alexander, one of the good guys. If you want to learn more about him and what he does, check out HigherSummits.com. Coming up, after a successful academic career, she reinvented herself as a photographer, and the subjects she now photographs have inspired her to keep growing bolder. Growing Boulder provided by our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingboulder.com slash COVID. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. Mark and Bill here on Growing Boulder, and you hear a lot about reinvention these days, about changing jobs or sometimes even changing careers after retiring. Yeah, the motivations are many. Some do it for the money, but the vast majority do it for the pleasure. They want to find a way to stay engaged, to make a difference, to challenge themselves while doing something they love. Alex Rodas did exactly that. UK-based Masters sports photographer Alex Rotas is anxious to get a few shots of Joe Johnston. Okay, we're good. Now in his 70s, Joe is an age group world record holder in the pole vault. I'm going to just take one to see what... Perfecto! Oh, hurry up, Joe. I can't wait. I'm so excited. After retiring from a distinguished academic career, Alex has reinvented herself as a photographer, despite knowing next to nothing about photography. I love new things. I love being a beginner. I'm, I, love, I love being at the bottom of a steep learning curve. And um, I keep finding sort of one thing just leads to another. And today, that's letter to Central Florida and the infamous Joe Dome, the backyard pole vaulting pit where Joe Johnston invents new training methods. Oh, my God. 
like bouncing on a pole. I'm, I'm blown away. Or his own take on the American Ninja Warrior climbing wall. Huh? I have never, ever met anyone like this. Alex is fascinated with aging athletes and specializes in action shots from national and world championships. She's compiled some of her best shots into a book called Growing Old Competitively that features many of the world's top masters athletes, like 37-time world record holder Olga Kotelko, who competed up until her death at age 95. And I said to her, so, so Olga, have you been doing track and field all your life? Because she was a world champion, um, aged 90-something. And she said, heavens no, honey, I only took it up when I was 77 years old. And I only discovered I could write when I was 93. How many people can say that? English shot put champion Cliff Taylor is also among the many greats in her book. And I said, oh, Cliff, here's, here's, here's my book and, um, and, and your pictures in it. And he said, Alex, why have you put me in your book of old people? He's 84. <laughs> He's 84. And that sums up the attitude of most Masters athletes. They don't consider themselves old, so they don't act old, and to a large degree, they don't get old. They remain active up until the very end, which is exactly what happened to Olga Kotelko. And I was convinced I was going to be photographing her when she was 100 and 105, and so I was pretty shocked to hear that she died two months later. But it was actually a terrific death. Uh, she, she, she did what they call squaring the circle, you know, she didn't decline. She just lived life ablaze and then whoops, went to bed one night and didn't wake up. So that's yeah. a great way to go. Alex says don't make the mistake of thinking that those she photographs are genetically superior individuals immune to the physical disabilities we all face as we get older. I think people would probably have the impression that these people you know, they, they are superhuman, you know, they don't have the hip replacements or the knee replacements or the heart attacks or the strokes, but they do, they have all of the above. And sometimes they have a combination of them and they just don't let it defeat them. Before leaving, Alex snaps a few more pictures and can't resist joining Joe and his wife, Janet, Whoa. in some good old fashioned fun. Oh, this is more fun than fun. <laughs> she likes to have fun. She tries stuff. Yeah, she's, uh, she's a special gal. And what does yeah, she well, think of her I, new I friend? Where to start? Where to start? I mean, it's eccentricity in the best possible way of the world. He's just his own person, isn't he? I mean, here living the dream, it doesn't matter what age he is. I mean, I've never seen anything like this dome. I have never seen it. Um, it's... It's, it's just awesome. Just when she's beginning to master a subject matter she loves, Alex is forcing herself to move on to something new. Her next challenge will be taking portraits of older gardeners. I don't know if it is in the States, but it's very big with older people um, in the UK. So there are lots and lots of people who get immense pleasure from gardening in their 80s and 90s. Alex Rotas has a love for adventure and no fear of failure. That's a powerful combination that has enabled her to create a new life in which she not only sees the world through the eyes of others, she gets to share in their passion and understand their purpose. I can't believe that I found something that's just giving me so much. Um, it's not just pleasure. I mean, it is pleasure. It's fun. Um, it's fun and it's laughter. But um, gosh, every day I feel my life's enriched. And, you know, you meet somebody like Joe Johnston and... Your life just gets a little bit bigger, doesn't it? Because you're seeing somebody live in a way that's totally his, um, totally unique, and you, you, couldn't, you couldn't make it up, you couldn't describe it, really. So, yeah, I just feel unbelievably blessed, I guess, to have found um, something that I love doing that's um, just giving me so much, having a blast. Man, it was great fun to introduce Alex to Joe and his wife, Janet. We knew they would all hit it off, and man, did they ever, which really is one of the greatest and most universal features of Masters sports, the community that forms around them, men and women of all ages, all backgrounds, that create a true connection because they share that common passion. You give yourself a whole new life, and it isn't just sports either because you see it in every activity, whether it's collecting antiques, painting, or singing, or drinking wine, or even skydiving a community forms around every shared passion and that creates a network of friends around the world.
Coming up, he may be as close to a modern-day Mark Twain as we have. New York Times bestselling author and Pulitzer Prize-winning humorist Dave Barry is next on Growing Boulder. Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. For decades, there's been a near frantic search for a new word to describe aging, something that makes us feel better about growing older. Companies create focus groups looking for the right word, and anti-ageism experts write extensively about promoting a new term that will magically change everyone's perception of growing older. Things like wisdom workers, grand elders, older adults, super-agers, olders, perennials, golden agers, modern elders, third-agers, boomers, and countless others. It's as if we believe that when we stumble upon the right descriptive word, we'll immediately feel better about ourselves, the workplace will respect us, and society will appreciate our value. This is exactly the problem. We allow these words to impact the way we think, what we believe, and even how we age. We don't need new words. We need to change or expand the definition of current words. We do that by changing the way we live, and we change the way we live by changing our belief system about what's possible. Yes, words do matter, but we can't allow ourselves to be bullied by them. We can't let someone calling us old or senior cause us to embrace the negative traits that are wrongly associated with those words. And we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that a new word will magically transform our later decades. Our next guest is a New York Times best-selling author and a Pulitzer Prize-winning humorist. He's now a grandfather and mm-hmm. entering the stage of life where we reflect on how best to share it with our loved ones and how best to create our legacy. Yeah, which pretty much explains what his latest book is about. It's a collection of seemingly random essays that he swears does have an underlying theme that ties them all together in a way that makes them not only worthy of a single volume, but more importantly, a powerful tool for those seeking happiness. It's called Live Right and Find Happiness, Although Beer is Much Faster. Welcome the master of wit and wisdom, Mr. Dave Barry. Dave, how are you today? I'm good. I didn't realize it was a powerful tool, but I'm I'm glad to hear it. Powerful tool. Yeah. Well, you know, we're guys. We love powerful tools. Uh, uh, who yeah. is who is your book written for? I mean, they they have to be over eighteen, given the title. Yes. Uh, no. I, I think it's written for anybody with enough money to buy the book, but they shouldn't <laughs> necessarily read it unless they're like fairly, you know, mature. Uh, no, immature. Um, but yeah, it's it's about happiness, sort of in general. And speaking of powerful tools, if I may. Um, there's an essay in there about a subject that causes a lot of unhappiness, at least for me, which is home ownership. Um, and particularly when there's something goes wrong with your house, which is, as, as you know, like every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 there are people who try to fix those, you know, do it yourself. Um, and th- this this concept that that you can do things yourself. That's what I try to, you know. Try to straighten people out on that. You really can't do anything yourself. Probably you will have to call a man with a truck to fix whatever it is. <laughs> um, but but people think they can do it themselves because they they watch these Home Depot commercials. You know what I mean? Where the, there's a cheerful, happy homeowner couple. Uh, they're at Home Depot and they're looking at uh, tile samples. And then in the next scene, 
they're wearing safety glasses and screwing in a screw. And then the next scene, they have a whole new kitchen. You know what I mean? I'm like, no, that will not happen. That will not happen like that at all. So, Well, anyway. Dave, there, there is one thing we do have to do ourselves, and it's parent, especially if you happen to have daughters. And if they're in the 14 to 15-year-old age range and you're taking them to soccer practice and you're sitting there in the front seat, you hear some amazing things, Dave. What have you heard in your experiences? Well, I, yeah, I, my daughter plays uh, a travel soccer, which means we spend a lot of time in the car. The way travel soccer works is every weekend you get in a car and you drive 200 miles, um, <laughs> even if there's no game. You, yeah, no, <laughs> you drive 200 miles to a, a soccer game, and you, usually you're playing against another team that drove 200 miles, sometimes starting out the same place you did. And then the reason you have to drive 200 miles is, you have to get to some place where it's raining really hard. That's the way <laughs> travel soccer works. But anyway, I still, but the point is, as you say, I spent a lot of time in the car with 14, 15-year-old girls listening to the radio. And um, you don't want to know, really. what this, What this. I try to just tune it out because, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm the old dad driving. But every now and then I listen to the, the lyrics that, of the songs these kids are listening to. And and it's a it's a it's terrifying. A lot of them involve um, butts, basically. Like I got a great big butt. You got a great. We got a. I don't know when that became a thing to sing about. <laughs> like I remember when it was like I'm. Why must I be a teenager in love? That's how old I am. And now it's like I got a butt. You can say I'm a butt and how about my butt? And you know, so it's a little bit terrifying. And we should say these are impressionable young Catholic schoolgirls. And you write in your book that uh, you know something we all face—a dilemma as parents. All of a sudden, Sir Mix-a-Lot's Anaconda comes on, and they start singing <laughs> in unison. What do you do? I I I pretend it's not happening. I, I try to you know, go to it. And the thing is, if you change the channel, and and that song you're you're referring to there, it's called Anaconda. And the anaconda, which most of us think of as a giant snake, it's not. That's not what it is in this song. That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> and as you say, these are good girls <laughs> singing along. And you change to another channel, but it's going to have the same song on or one just as bad. Um, that's that's the terrifying thing. And Dave Barry, it is your fault whether you realize it or not. I mean, being in a band called the Rock Bottom Remainders. Oh, good point. I hadn't even thought of that. Well, see, there we, you go. We're the original butt band. No, that's, that's, we're too old to know any song like that. Hey, listen, we talked to you before when you wrote the book, You Can Date Boys When You're 40. Great book. Of course, when you wrote that book, they weren't singing and listening to those songs on the radio like they are. But now, now the golden years. Your daughter is that magical age of a, a mid to late teenager. And the big thing is happening. Dating is right around the corner. Dating and well, that's and that's bad enough. But also um, driving. She's my daughter, who's fifteen, and in my mind, you know, fifteen is like four. Is about to be allowed to drive by the state of Florida on the roads of Florida, which are the most terrifying roads in the world. I think. Um, I live in Miami, and um, the driving here is unlike anything you've seen. My theory is everyone here is driving according to the law of his or her individual country of origin <laughs> so you have many many different styles there's like some countries where apparently it's traditional to put on your left turn signal first thing in the morning just leave that baby on just in case all day and other people who they, they don't signal with their turn signal they signal by discharging their firearms out their windows you don't know what you're going to see on the roads of florida so my and then then we also have a lot of um senior citizen drivers down here who drive sometimes by what i call the seeing-eye wife method, which is where the man is driving. He's at the wheel because he's always the driver. The man is traditionally the driver, even though he lost his ability to see several years ago. So his wife sitting next to him is, <laughs> is doing the seeing. She's like shouting directions at him. You know, it's yellow. No, it's black. No, it's green. No, stop. You know, that's, that's, so there's like a delay, which is why we have so many accidents down here where cars end up in swimming pools and in convenience stores. And, you know, that's, that's kind of – and that's where my daughter's going to be, out there driving in that environment. So uh, you, it makes me a little nervous. You, you know, be careful, Dave, because uh, you are a senior citizen yourself now. Hard to believe, but, but 67 years old. And you, you close your book with uh, uh, 
something you've written for your grandson, a letter to him. What concerns you, do you have or what wisdom do you think you need to impart to your grandson? Well, I thought long and hard about that. Um, as I say, I'm, you know, I've been around almost seven decades, and I wanted to pass along the wisdom I've acquired. And the only thing that I'm really sure of, that I'm confident of, that's wise and true and good and needs to be passed along to the next generation is this. You do not need to refrigerate ketchup. <laughs> well, that's I, it. And the thing is, a lot of people do, but these people, and maybe you guys do, I don't know, but think about it. When you walk into a restaurant, where's the ketchup? Somehow this guy has made a pretty darn good living uh, writing this kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, this observational humor, which is fabulous. Dave, we've got 30 seconds. On the table. Uh, give us, give us, give, give us, give us a bit of wisdom. Uh, uh, easy to make fun of people as they get older, but there's got to be something positive about that. What have you learned about life that, that you can share with us in the final twenty seconds here? Well, the I would say the best thing about life, about being uh, being older is that you don't worry so much about stuff that's going to happen. You go like when they say, "Hey, you know, the uh, if we don't straighten out our lifestyles, the entire you know East Coast is going to be underwater." in like 10 years and, and it used to be i worried about that now my reaction is okay but i'm not going to be here <laughs> there's that <laughs> folks if you want your if you want your wit wrapped up with some wisdom and who really doesn't want that check out dave barry's new book it's called live right and find happiness although beer is much faster uh dave thanks so much for the visit uh, we really appreciate it Coming up next, an award-winning writer of poetry and fiction has a hopeful message for anybody that thinks it's too late to create the life they love. This is Growing Bolder. When the glimpse of our past fades away so fast Like a cast in that dance in the night When the glimpse of our past fades away so fast Like a cast in that dance in the night Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. And our next guest has had many different jobs, but they've all had one common thread writing. She's had a lifelong love affair with writing, and you know what? It's still going strong in her 70s. And she's had a lot of interesting jobs. She began as a full-time staff writer for Hallmark Cards. She's written stories for those comprehension tests that are used in public schools throughout the country. She's written observational humor for the New York Times and Newsday, and she recently retired from Disney in order to write full-time, and it is a move that's paying off in a big way. Let's welcome Mary Flynn. Hey, Mary, how are you? Oh, good morning. Fine. Thank you so much. It's an honor to speak with both of you. Oh, oh man, I love your enthusiasm. We love your story, Mary, for many reasons, including because you seem to be almost the poster girl for successful aging. You're doing what you love in a way that you want. You seem to be happy, positive, and engaged. Is all of that true? What do you think about life in your 70s? Oh, my gosh, I love it. You know, and, and I have to say, like everybody else, my life had its sadnesses and losses. That's a truism for everybody. I don't know a soul who's gone through life living the exact dream they dreamed at 21. Uh, mine is not the life I dreamed at 21. If someone had told me at 21 that this is the life I would have now, I would have died from it. You know, we have to grow into our life. But I am so happy and content and passionate for the things that are here now and grateful. It's a joy. 
So, so, Mary, you've done so many different things in your career. I mean, you wrote greeting cards, and Mark said you had poetry that you wrote, too, from editorial pieces, from magazines, to nonfiction for school kids. Is that what's made it such a satisfying life, or is there one thing that you really love to do? Well, I think, you know, I guess, it's a good question. I, I guess what characterizes my writing, which probably comes from, my life focus is the human experience. I enjoy the human experience. I enjoy people. Now, there's some people I meet, and I know they're not going to be good for me. You know, you know how we sense, like, energy that I don't want to be around this person a lot, you know? Uh, so I have wonderful people in my life, and, and I think that that plus keeping an open mind about what's possible and noticing the nuances of life. And that's what feeds a storyline when you, well, I guess I have a writer's mind, whatever that is. I think in terms of everything could become a storyline. Uh, you either have that or you don't, I suppose. So that's what feeds it is the human experience, noticing what people do and how they are. And I guess it's as simple as that. I think you could uh, add philosopher to your resume, Mary. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, before we move ahead, I, I got to jump back because you said something that, that that I'd like to know more about. You said that if you had known at 21 that you would be doing what you are now, you would have hated it. What did you want to do when you were 21? What did you see might be your future? At 21, I was married. I, I got married and uh, to a wonderful man. He's still a wonderful man. We just haven't been married for the last... Uh, 20 years. Wow. If someone had told me then that I would, that later in my life, he would not be in my life, it would have killed me. I wanted to have 10 children. I had none. The daughters who call me mom are actually my nieces that we raised. So God even filled that gap. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, everything that I had thought would be the substance of my life, what I wanted to be the substance of my life, um, came to pass only briefly, and then moved on. So the, if I knew that then, uh, it would have been very painful. I wasn't prepared. My, my spirit wasn't ready for that. I was a young dreamer. You know, does that make sense? No, I love it. it. It makes perfect sense. I love this conversation. You really are now. We are going to deem you the poster girl for successful aging because, you know, you've touched on some great points that we didn't know about, weren't in our questions for you. Uh, and that is the obvious one that we all encounter frustrations, setbacks, disappointments in our lives. And those who age successfully are the ones who somehow are able to not only move on, but to move on with a smile and gratitude. Uh, you know, what, what has led you to develop that ability or does it just come naturally? I don't know. I only know that I am a very faithful person. I clearly have flaws and I fail. Um, somewhere along the line, I... You, oh, you know, you know who it was? I, you'll probably think this is corny. My idol is Walt Disney, hmm. okay? Not necessarily the park experience. I'm talking Walt the man. And here was a man who took everything, that ha every calamity in his life and turned it into a creative idea. And one thing that Walt Disney said that I never forgot, he said, everybody should have a good, hard failure, because in that failure, we see it all. We see how we have to grow and get past it and learn from it and move on. And it, it trains us for the years and the trials ahead. So I've been, I guess, I guess I've been blessed by adversity and, you know, a chance to look at things. In fact, a friend of mine not long ago said, don't you ever get sad? I said, of course I do. That's what the Hallmark Channel's for. I, I <laughs> cry at those corny movies. And then I move on. I mean, I, I look at, and, and I believe, this is the faith part, I, one of the things I believe is that God's not going to give me anything more until I'm satisfied with what I have. And I'm extremely satisfied. I have wonderful friends. I have opportunities. I'm enjoying good health. Even though, I have to say, I did have breast cancer surgery two years ago, but here's, let me just share a trick about that. This is not to disrespect this idea at all, but I do not have any pink ribbons around me. Hmm. 
Um, it's a wonderful idea. I do not want anything to define me with cancer. I don't want to be reminded of it. I had it. It's gone. I did what I had to do, and I'm still doing it. And then I need to think of other things. So that's just the way I try to kind of stoke my spirit. You know what, Mary, you've given us so much to think about in a, in, in a very surprising, very fresh and spontaneous kind of way. It isn't the, the challenges that define our life. It's how you deal with them and how you overcome them. And I don't want people to think that that's all you are and that's why you're here. You've done so many things and you're still doing them. You've got a couple of books on the market, Reggie and Rocky and the Ringtail Raccoons and <laughs> Mr. Pepple's Pillows. These are stories for middle grade readers. You're a major award winner in your 70s from the Writer's Digest annual writing competition, and you were a double finalist in the Royal Palm Literary Awards. It's, it's just tremendous. You're such a, a beacon for what's possible as we grow into our 70s and, and maybe even beyond. And I just want people to know that because I want them to look you up on the Internet, authorsroundtable.org slash Mary Flynn, to learn more about where this amazing philosophy and this powerful way of living life comes from. We've really enjoyed our conversation with Mary Flynn. Coming up, how he went from a drug-addicted, alcoholic, 320-pound, morbidly obese man to a lean, clean motivation machine. That's next on Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder, and it is time now for our Surviving and Thriving segment. With the right kind of care and support and the right attitude, it's possible not only to survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in the aftermath. And this is the perfect interview for that, Bill, because his story reads like a Hollywood movie. He grew up poor and homeless, actually living out of his father's pickup truck. With no formal education, he became the owner of a chain of 13 retail stores by the time he was 29, but then the bottom fell out and he became a binge-drinking, pill-popping, 320-pound, morbidly obese alcoholic. Today, he's a professional athlete and the author of a fascinating and inspiring autobiography called Out There, A Story of Ultra-Recovery. Welcome, David Clark. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, man. Wow, that's a lot when you put it together in one sentence like that. Man, I get tired just thinking about what you've <laughs> been through. But, you know, there's nothing we love more than a comeback story because that inspires us all to know that it's never too late. So if it's okay, if you don't mind going back there, let's start at rock bottom. How bad off were you, and what led you to finally trying to turn it all around? You know, uh, it was it was pretty bad, you know. I mean, I kind of look back at it now, and it, it almost really just looks like, a, you know, the deconstruction of a human being. Um, I got to this place where I had uh, built myself up to a point where it could have made me pretty happy given, given my starts, but it actually did the opposite of that. It kind of exposed all of those areas that, um, you know, needed attention. And um, by the end, I was, you know, taken... There wasn't anything in my life that I didn't look at as like a way of comforting me. If it was food, I had to do it, you know, five, six, seven trips a day to the fast food store. If it was alcohol, you know, one was never enough, you know, 30 wasn't, 30 wasn't enough and one was too many, you know. So, you know, as, as things just kept devolving and, and all these things that I had kept kind of getting stripped from me and I was left with only things from the outside to comfort me and um, eventually I knew that was going to keep spiraling down and down and down. And I didn't want to see what the real bottom looked like. So it was just like you said, um, I, I was lying in bed one morning and I thought, 
that's it. I'm either going to give up and die or I'm going to show my kids what a comeback looks like. And, and that was kind of the moment. So talk about comebacks. Uh, I would guess like most 320-pounders, you start to train for an ultramarathon. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's not the standard standard path. But <laughs> Did Dave, Dave do you, have you ever heard the phrase baby steps? <laughs> yes, but I've never understood it. <laughs> you know, I mean, for me, the emotional stakes had to be really high, you know, and, you know, obviously to get to the point where you're a, a bottle a day whiskey drinker and, and pop and painkillers and that kind of stuff, you know, extremes are, are kind of the norm. And I think that um, for me, in a sense, I kind of had to use my, my weakness and turn it into a strength and, and make the, um, make the emotional stakes high, as I said, and I couldn't think of anything crazier than, you know, becoming a, a runner. Um, and for me, it was that, it had to be that. If it didn't seem impossible, it didn't seem worth doing. So uh, I just set about the uh, the task of uh, breaking down my entire identity, how I looked at myself. You know, I figured I wasn't a 320-pound alcoholic addict by accident, you know. And it was my thinking that got me there, so it was my thinking that had to change. You know, David, I think we all get the, the you know the crazy idea. You know, let's do something bizarre and big and make a statement and change our lives. What none of us can do, or very few of us, is can continue to persist. You know, can deal with the failure, the frustration that that comes with changing your life. What kept you going? How did you find that strength? You know, it really is. It's funny because it's a matter of commitment, right? I mean, I think when as human beings, when we commit to something, truly commit to something, we, we always make that thing happen. The problem is we, we really fail to take that first step, you know. And for me, all of the past times where I'm trying to, you know, quit drinking, lose weight, get to the gym, whatever, it was very superficial, you know. I was trying to change my behavior. I was trying to, like, I'm going to work out more. I'm going to drink less. When I made my change back in August of 2005, I didn't try to change my behavior. I tried to change the entire concept of who I thought I was and, and who I believed I was. And so that was the work that I went about doing. And once I did that, you know, my behaviors kind of changed naturally. You know, they, they, it wasn't, I wasn't in battle with myself. So every bad thing that happened along the way, and there's a lot of those, you know, I just ran it through that filter. Does this does this fit into this new picture of who I am? And if it didn't, I just threw it away and kept going. So, Dave, we could have stopped there, and that would have been a great story. But now that's sort of, sort of halfway through for you because now you use ultra sports to help other people conquer their own demons. Tell us about the Superman Project. Yeah, the Superman Project started um, actually after I finished my, my very first 100-miler. It was a, a, a race up in Leadville, Colorado, and it's at uh, 10,000 feet in elevation, and it goes over mountain passes, and it was just this amazing culmination of, of years of training. And my son, who's 13 now, he was, let's see, he was eight, I think, at the time. He had seen me change, and he'd seen me go through all this. And at the end of the race, he said, Dad, you turned into Superman, and... I was like, no, I didn't, you know, but we, we can all be Superman for one day, you know, and, and we can all be really strong for one day, and that's all it, it takes to change your life. And I was just trying to explain it to him, and that was really the birth of the Superman Project for me. And now we're a, a coaching resource. You know, we write training plans, and we try to help anyone who wants to, to help themselves. And it's not going to be for everyone. You know, and we don't just train people for ultra marathons, but anyone who wants to do something that seems impossible. And for some, that's a 5K or, you know, um, climbing up a, a hiking route that they once did or, or going for a swim or whatever it is. Dave, we're going to have to get you back on because this is a fascinating subject and time is short today. But can you give us a 30 second takeaway? What is the, the, the Dave Clark moral? You know, it's the Dave Clark moral is it doesn't matter what you accomplish. It doesn't matter, you know, who you think you are. The reality is the true measure of a human being is what it takes to discourage them. And if you willingly and positively choose to see the best that's happening in life, nothing will ever stop. Amen. A fascinating guy, uh, folks, who has written a great book. It's called 
out there, A Story of Ultra Recovery. It's now available at Amazon.com. Uh, and check out his website, thesupermanproject.org. I know you'll be inspired by what he's doing, and maybe it will help you change your life as well. Dave, thanks so much. And if you haven't already, check out Growing Boulder TV on public television stations around the country. And we invite you to subscribe to our one-of-a-kind Growing Boulder magazine, packed with inspiring stories, tips, tools, everything you need to help make the rest of your life the best of your life. Yeah, you know what? It's also the perfect gift for anyone you know who needs a little inspiration to get off the couch and get into life. Just go to growingbolder.com slash subscribe, where you can also sign up for our free newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook as well. Folks, we will see you next time right here. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. Fire and flaming road Using ideas as my map We'll meet on edges soon Said I Proud me heated brow Ah, but I was so much older then I'm younger than that now Half-right prejudice leap Deceived me into thinking I had something